if you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, and verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passer-by, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saves others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So we're in Mark 15. And Mark 15 is about the day that Jesus, as Johnny has reminded us, God's rescuing king, the son of God, died. Prophecy looked ahead to it. And the worship of eternity will look back to it. Perhaps around 600 soldiers gathered at the palace. But in contrast, there were more than 12 legions of angels, more than 72,000 angels on the parapets of heaven, 
waiting to come down if summoned by Jesus. The soldiers put a purple robe and a crown of thorns on him, and Matthew adds a reed in his hand. All symbols of royalty, but they make them a subject for mockery. Yet the one who suffers is God's rescuing king, and will be the one who reigns. The one who is made lower than angels will be crowned with glory and honor. And one day they will bow before the one they mocked. They sneered at him, hail king of the Jews. They struck him on the head, spat on him one after another, and falling on their knees mockingly, they paid homage to him. The restraint of divine grace allowed them to live. Then they put his own garments on him again because unknown to them, scripture had to be fulfilled even about his garments. They led him out, outside the city to crucify him. Verse 21, as they led Jesus out, Simon of Cyrene, who'd come about 800 miles to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, met Jesus, the Lamb of God. And he was the one who would help God's rescuing king that day. One moment, Simon was walking across a field. The next moment, he was carrying Jesus' cross. It's the most wonderful day in Simon's life. For God is sovereignly at work in Simon's life and his family's life that day. Mark identifies Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. In later years, Mark wrote his gospel in Rome. And this family are well known in the early church there. A fact confirmed by Paul's mention of Rufus and his mother, Simon's wife, in his letter to the Romans. Not only did Simon carry the cross that day, but Simon, his wife and family would come to faith in Jesus. An amazing work of God began in that family this very day. They found God's rescuing king. Remarkably, as you think of it, Simon could tell others firsthand of carrying the cross, about Jesus on the path up the hill to Golgotha that day, and what happened to Jesus there. Golgotha was outside the city wall, a place of rejection. Many times Jesus may have passed Golgotha, knowing that that would be the place of his cross. As the poet said, he made the hill on which it stood. He made the tree that gave the wood. And in some hidden vein of land, he made the steel that pierced his hand. On the way, Jesus was offered wine mingled with myrrh. Perhaps as an act of mercy prepared by someone to alleviate the pain. But he did not take it. 
Jesus had already measured the deepest depths of sin. The extremities of the pain, of suffering, and of atonement. And he was committed to fulfill God's will. And he will go the whole way to make full atonement for God and to save the sinner to the uttermost. He calmed the storm on Galilee, but he would bear the storm at Golgotha. They crucified Jesus, and other Gospels confirmed that the soldiers divided up his garments, and that they cast lots for his seamless garment. The seamless garment was valued more than the one who wore it. In verses 24 and 25, they crucified him. Only three words repeated in those two verses, as if Mark is saying, that is all I am writing. No elaboration, for this is the holiest of days in all ages, when the Son of God becomes the sacrificial Lamb of God and displays the fullness of God's love. For us, Messiah is cut off, God's rescuing king is crucified. The criminal offense behind his crucifixion was written on a wooden board, verse 26, which read, The King of the Jews. This is the reason for his crucifixion. That title spanned his lifetime used by the wise men at his birth and by Pilate at his crucifixion, but never recognized by his own people. He came to his own, and his own received him not. There were three crosses, two robbers, one on the left and one on the right, and Jesus was on the middle cross. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. You'll remember that James and John had asked to be seated on his right and left in glory. But this is a scene they never imagined as they said those words. Those who had come to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem had brought a lamb. And now passing by, they also are mocking the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on Jesus. Yet, amid all this clamor, one robber who had insulted Jesus in mercy had a further conversation and becomes redemption's earliest trophy of grace. And as he entered paradise later that day, could exclaim, Jesus, God's rescuing king, promised that I'd be here. You can trust Jesus, and he keeps his word. The passers-by shouted, save yourself, come down from the cross. But he came to die to save others. And we see that religion does not regenerate evil hearts. For the chief priests and teachers of the law are mocking among themselves. He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, 
This king of Israel, come down from the cross and we will believe. Such repeated sarcasm strangely acknowledges Jesus as the Christ and Israel as the chosen people of God. They would believe if he came down from the cross. Today, as believers, we fix our eternal hope upon him because he stayed on the cross. In verse 33, God visits Calvary. Three hours of darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour, when God withdrew created light from the world. Darkness, yes, but a silent announcement that God's Son is bearing the sin of the whole world and making atonement for sin. Dionysius, who believed in Jesus in Acts 17, when an astronomy student in Heliopolis actually witnessed this darkness in Egypt that day, and struck with fear and awe, he wrote in his diary, Either the creator of all the world now suffers, or this visible world is coming to an end. Darkness covered the whole world. These three hours of darkness were planned in eternity past by God for this day, when the long-awaited, spotless Lamb of God dies to satisfy the demands of God's righteousness by paying sin's penalty in full. For at the cross, God placed the judgment of sin upon the sin-bearer that the sinner may go free. In verse 34, Jesus gave a loud cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The angels on the parapets of heaven folded their wings at that moment and bowed their heads. God had laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all, and his soul was being made an offering for sin. Jesus had accepted and drained the cup of God's wrath. God's will was done. The price paid in full for our redemption when he was forsaken. My God, why have you forsaken me? No other sentence is so full of anguish. It cannot be measured any more than we can measure the sins which were atoned for or fathom the love of God. We may worship, but we cannot comprehend it. For this reason, he was born into this world to die for the sin of the world. And in him alone, we find forgiveness and eternal life. On the cross the alone Son of God was taking away the sin of the world. And the holiness of God cannot look upon such an awful scene. The voice that had cried from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I have found my delight, is silent. Yet it will speak again. The Bible tells us the secret things belong to God. And this is one of them, 
that we will never understand except that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The cry from Jesus was not, why have my disciples forsaken me? But why has God forsaken me? Such was the cost of our salvation. Yet again the crowds jest, saying he calls for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But then we arrive at verse 37, which stands alone with its majestic declaration. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. What were his last words? His final cry. It is finished. Not a cry of defeat, but a cry of victory. Suddenly, those angels on the parapets of heaven looked at each other in amazement at what they had heard. And the multitude of that heavenly host that had exclaimed over Bethlehem, glory to God in the highest, a saviour has been born, are again in full chorus. Glory to God in the highest, the saviour has done it, he is Christ the Lord. They are filled with wonder. And as Peter wrote, angels long to look into these things. Let us all stand at the cross. Hear that cry. Realize what Jesus did for you and me. And simply say, thank you, Lord. What can I give him? Give him my heart. And Jesus breathed his last. Jesus is in control. No one will take my life from me. I lay it down of myself. It is for us, but primarily for God, that God might turn to us and say with outstretched arms, Come to me. All is finished. All is done. Jesus had done all that God asked, saw the joy that lay before him and breathed his last. A sign had been nailed above the cross, the king of the Jews. But another certificate was nailed to the cross that afternoon. Our cancelled certificate of debt and sins and guilt for God's rescuing king had paid our debt in full. Hallelujah, what a saviour we have. The hymn writer said, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. An amazing love, how can it be that thou, my Lord, shouldst die for me? The issue of sin and separation from God was settled forever. And God made another announcement. He tore the huge temple curtain from the top to the bottom. It was impossible, humanly speaking, to tear that curtain. But invisible, divine hands took hold of it and rent it. The turn curtain is another sermon without words preached by God himself. God had been watching every detail, 
listening every moment. And at the exact moment of Jesus' victorious cry, he rent the curtain from top to bottom. Not just for us to look in through a partly torn gap in the curtain, but to enter in through a curtain torn in two, indicating one entrance, one way back to God, from the top to the floor of the temple that the smallest child could enter in. How shocked Caiaphas must have been when the temple curtain was rent. For a new and living way was opened through Jesus Christ for all who believe, and that access is open forever. There is no condemnation to those who believe in Christ Jesus. Yes, our sins, they are many, but God's mercy is more. Verse 39, we might say, is a high point that Mark envisaged as he opened his gospel. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here we have the centurion's confession. Truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion had heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. He had heard the robber's conversation with Jesus. Remember me, Lord, when you come in your kingdom. He had heard Jesus' response, Today you shall be with me in paradise. And finally, he saw how Jesus died and heard his loud cry, It is finished. And now the centurion makes his own declaration. Truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion had been amazed as Jesus cried loudly and instantly breathed his last and died. It was not a priest, nor a rabbi, nor a Jew, but a Gentile centurion who is the first to affirm at the cross that Jesus is the Son of God. As Mark closes this section, he tells us about these unique women who administered to Jesus, caring for his needs all the way from Galilee. And while his disciples scattered, these women watched the crucifixion at a distance. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and many other women, unnamed, unknown, but well-known in heaven, and they are ready to do and will do more for Jesus. What does the cross mean to you and me? Perhaps like Simon, you can meet Jesus, understand the good news, and the life of you and your family could be changed forever. Or like the robber, you may have a conversation with Jesus, recognizing that he is God's rescuing king with a kingdom and trust in him. Or like the centurion, when he returned to his barracks that night to watch over his battalion of a hundred soldiers, 
and saw four of them telling the others of the day's events. One said, we parted his clothes and I got this. And the other three all say, I got this. But one adds, there was a fifth article. It was seamless. We didn't tear it. We cast lots for it. And I got it as well. The centurion moved forward and said, just let me say something. I was standing in front of Jesus. I heard his loud cry. I saw how he died. It was his decision to die at that moment. And listen, truly, this man was the son of God. You may have the garments, but I have discovered the person. Therein lies the final question. Have we all discovered the person, the Son of God, the Saviour, God's rescuing King? So perhaps as we close, we can rejoice together with Simon of Cyrene, the Jewish robber, and the Roman centurion, as we sing our closing hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because you endured the sorrows of Calvary, we will forever, throughout all eternity, enjoy the gladness of the gospel. So we pray that each of us may enthrone you in our hearts again this evening. And may we go forward to serve you faithfully until that day when we meet you in glory and we really realize how wonderful you are. So Lord Jesus, we give you our praise and our thanks for all you've done for us in your precious name. Amen.